2 Timothy chapter 2. A number of years ago here at the college, early on when we were just kind of getting started, I shared some of the things that God used in this chapter to affect my own life. And I want to bring them to you this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let me just give you a brief feeling for 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter. The last three letters that he wrote in this order were 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. As he writes this letter, he knows he's near the end of his life. In fact, in chapter 4, he says in verse 6, The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And he knows he's about to die. And he was. It wasn't long after this that an axe head flashed in the sun and cut his head off his body. And he was with the Lord. So he's writing his last letter here. He writes it to young Timothy because Timothy is to carry on his work. It is very important that Timothy sustain the ministry that Paul has begun. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says to Timothy, You therefore, my son, he was his spiritual son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, Timothy, I'm counting on you. I'm passing the baton to you. I'm giving you the responsibility to follow up for me, and I want you to be strong in this. You know, this is how every, every pastor, every spiritual leader, I would think every faculty member, every RD, uh, everybody who works with anybody in a discipleship relationship would feel. I want you to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I, I want you to carry on when I'm not around with great spiritual strength. It was important to say this to Timothy for a number of reasons. Go back to chapter 1. Timothy had some weaknesses, as we all do, and Paul recognized those. You will remember in chapter 1, no doubt, that Timothy demonstrated a spirit of timidity. Look at verse 7. He says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity. That means cowardice, lack of courage. Paul had started this church. Paul had gone into prison. He came out of prison, went back to Ephesus, and found that the church had already begun to decay in its leadership. And so he comes back to Ephesus after his imprisonment, his first imprisonment, and he meets Timothy. They rendezvous in Ephesus. And Paul sees terrible things in the church. At the end of chapter 1, uh, he identifies some of the problems. Verse 15, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. He says, I can't believe this, but I come back and all these people have defected from the faith. In chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, he says, I had to remove the leaders of the church when I came there. I found Hymenaeus and Alexander and I had to deliver them to Satan so they'd learn not to blaspheme. You had some blasphemous leadership. You had people defecting from the faith in the churches in Asia. It was really tragic. And so what Paul did was, having rendezvoused with Timothy and assessed the situation, Paul himself kicked out Hymenaeus and he kicked out Alexander and he says, Timothy, I'm going to leave you here to clean the rest up. The church had become ungodly. It had people in leadership who had no business being there. That's why in 1 Timothy 3, he gives the qualifications for an elder because there were so many unqualified people. There were women who were stepping outside of the God-ordained role. That's why in chapter 2, he defines the role of a woman. There were men who were violating their ordained role by God. That's why he talks about how men are to act. And the whole of 1 Timothy is how you ought to behave in the church, which is the living house of God. 
A lot of problems. So he leaves Timothy there. Then he goes away. Timothy's got major problems. How do you come in as an outsider and throw out the leadership? Tough job. Lots of problems. And then added to that, there were some very, very heavy-duty philosophies coming into the church from Ephesian errorists, people teaching error around the city of Ephesus. And Timothy had a hard time reacting to it, finding an answer, a defense for this. And so he was being battered from the outside, battered from the inside. People were saying he was too young to be in that role. That's why Paul says, don't let any man despise your youth. People were were saying that Timothy was too argumentative and he was too brash and he picked too many fights with the leadership. And so Paul writes and says, don't strive, but be gentle, back off a little bit. It was a tough, tough situation Timothy was in. Because of it, he started to get intimidated. And he's beginning to back away. Verse 6 of chapter 1 Paul says, kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. Fan the flame. Get the fire going again. God didn't give you a spirit of timidity. If you're timid and hesitant and backing off, it isn't from God. God's given you the spirit of power, love, and discipline. Then in verse 8 he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner. Could it be that Timothy was so intimidated by all this heat coming at him that he even was ashamed to identify with Christ, ashamed to identify with Paul. That is really tragic. That is tragic. You'll go down into verse 13. And Paul says to him, retain the standard of sound words which you've heard. And then in verse 14, guard the treasure entrusted to you. That's the scripture. Could it be that Timothy was in danger of turning away from the Scripture? So much intimidation, so much heat, so much pressure. And then he had all of the passions of youth. And Paul has to say to him in the first letter, flee youthful lusts. So here's a young guy. He's left in a church. He's told, straighten it up. But he's young. He tends to be a little brash and bold and argumentative. He's still fighting youthful lusts in his own life and probably saying, who am I to straighten out the church? i got my own problems. He can't really answer all of the philosophical errors that are flooding into the church. He's having a hard time stemming the tide of ungodliness. He feels very inadequate, so he just starts to falter and he starts to dwindle away and he starts to reject his responsibility. And Paul says, you've got to start the fire again. You've got to get back in the fight. You've got to retain the sound doctrine. You have to stay at it. This is like a, this is like a fourth quarter pep talk. Paul is saying, Timothy, I'm, I'm writing you. This is my last shot, man. I'm going to die pretty soon. you got to get your act together. I, I don't want to leave this world wondering what level of commitment you're at. I mean, I want you to be totally on fire. I want you to be totally committed, no matter how difficult the task is. I want you to be unashamed of Christ and unashamed of me. And I want you to be holding to the sound doctrine. And don't be like all these other people who have left me and abandoned me. Don't do that to me. You remember those, those sad and very, very painful words of Paul when he said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. When he says, everybody has forsaken me. He told the Philippians, I have nobody I can even send to you except Timothy. He's the only one who understands my heart. And now he's saying, Timothy, you're the only one I've got. Are you going to betray me? Are you going to fail? So in chapter 2, we come to it now, verse 1. He says, look. You've got to be strong. You've got to be strong. This is a call to be strong. 
But how? I mean, you can't just have a pep talk. You can't just be, you know, sort of shouting at people. We've all had that. Anybody who's been in athletics has heard those halftime deals. Or you've been to camp sometime and somebody gave this pep talk at camp and you got real moved and emotional and started throwing sticks in the fire or giving testimonies or crying. We've all done it. I've done it. Everybody's done it. If you've ever been in that environment. And you want to give your whole life to God. Some of you have even signed up to go to some remote mission field. Now you wonder whatever possessed you to do such a foolish thing, you know. In the moment's emotion. I mean, a pep talk is fine as far as it goes. I remember being at a camp and a kid got so moved, he, he went to the front and he said, I want to give all my time to God. And he took his watch off and threw it in the fire, you know. And somebody said, oh, what dedication. And I said, what stupidity. That you got to buy another watch, you know. God doesn't want your watch. But, you know, you get emotionally pumped. But there's more than that, all right? If you're going to be a strong Christian, Paul says, I want to give you four pictures. This is how you define it. Four pictures of spiritual strength. Now, by the way, Paul, like Jesus, loved to teach in word pictures, so it's very graphic. Four pictures. Number one in verse two. You want to be strong, Timothy? Here it is. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Key word, teach. First thing, if you're a strong Christian, you view yourself as a teacher. You view yourself as a teacher. You have this overwhelming sense of responsibility to disseminate spiritual truth to somebody else. That's the nature of a strong believer. And would you please note how the flow goes? Paul says, I taught you, Timothy. You teach faithful men, Timothy, who will be able to teach others also. Listen to this. That's four generations. Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others also. Four generations. He is saying to Timothy, you're in a relay race. Your responsibility is to pass this on, to pass this on. Somebody gave it to you, you give it to somebody else. As a young boy, 11 years old, I stood in the hallway as my grandfather died of cancer. Who He had preached uh, up until the, the last breath he had almost. And he was lying in his deathbed and he was saying to me, uh, to my dad, I, I just want to preach one more time. I just want to preach one more time. If the Lord will just let me preach one more time. Uh, that is indelible in my mind. That that kind of commitment to the Word of God, that kind of legacy of the love of preaching and the love of teaching was passed from my grandfather to my father. And my father, who's now 76 years of age and uh, they keep saying he's going to retire, continues to preach every Sunday morning and every Sunday night of his life because he has this passion to disseminate the truth. And I, I still spend time with my dad whenever I can. And I can say this with all honesty. Never in all the years I have spent time with my father have we had a single conversation on the same subject in the same way. Because to this very day, he continues to be so well read and so completely committed to the process of study that every time I'm with him, he unloads on me something new that I've never heard. That kind of passion for truth and the dissemination of truth. It's the legacy I grew up with. I went away to seminary, and, and Dr. Charles Feinberg was the dean of Talbot Seminary at the time when I went there. And I went there for one reason. I only went to that seminary because I wanted to study under him. Because in my mind, he had mastered the understanding of Scripture. And he poured his life into me in very significant ways. 
He gave me books to read. He called me into his office. He challenged my thinking. When I preached my first sermon in Talbot Chapel to the whole student body and the faculty, um, they, the faculty critique you on eight and a half by 14 sheets of paper. On both sides, there's lines and boxes and things you check off, hand gestures, facial gestures, facial expressions, illustrations, treatment of the text, uh, everything. And when I got his sheet after preaching my heart out, it said, you missed the whole point of the passage. And he signed his name. I was absolutely devastated, but it was the greatest investment he ever made in my life because from then on, I was very, very committed to not missing the whole point of the passage. It had a dendelum. It was more important. I don't remember any lectures he gave, but I remember that. So a lot of men invested a lot in me, poured their life into me. And I have this immense responsibility to disseminate what I know to the next generation. Now, you're going to say, well, I don't know much. Well, find somebody who knows less than you do and tell them everything you know. And then find somebody who knows more than you know and find out everything they know. You've got to get in the flow. It's like a relay race. It's like a relay race. When I was a college student, basically I played baseball, but because I could run fairly fast, they would put me on the track team and we'd have significant track meets. We got in the Orange County Invitationals one year. It's one of my favorite stories my college days, we got in the Orange County Invitationals and I was to run the sprint events, do the high jump, the broad jump, and run in the, in the four-man mile relay over a two-day period. And so I got involved and did my thing. We came down to the final event, which was the 4 by 400 or the, or the 440 relay, four guys running one lap. And we really had a, a decent chance. Uh, we had a pretty, there were 35 colleges and universities in it. It was happening at Chapman College. And it filtered it down, and we were in the finals, and I was running second man. First man gets a lead, second man loses it. You have two to make it up. That's how they work those relay deals. They usually put the slowest guy second. And because I was not really a track guy, they put me there, just try to hold my own. But some days you feel better than other days. Our first guy ran a great leg. We came in, and we had a perfect baton pass, and I got just a perfect optimum moment, just reaching stride and... Uh, was able to get the baton and blew out of the lane and actually got a lead. And I was able to hold the lead all the way around the lap, ran the best leg I, I ever ran. And I came in, and, and again, we had just a perfect baton pass. The guy on the receiving end was named Ted, and I slapped the baton in his hand. And just exactly at that optimum moment again, and we knew we were in good shape because we had a blur for an anchor. And if we could get in the thing anywhere near the front, we could, we could win it, at least have a good shot at it. I'll never forget as Ted went down, made the turn, and we were just pumped, you know, because we were there right where we wanted to be, and the anchor was waiting to, to win the whole deal. And he went down the backstretch, and about halfway down the backstretch, he stopped, walked off the track, and sat on the grass. Now, I thought he popped his Panteras, you know, or tore a hamstring or something. I didn't know what he had done. And the race went on, and that was it. We were out, and I ran across, and I'll never forget it, as long as I live. I looked down at him, he was sitting on the grass, and I said, Ted, what happened? He looked up at me, and he said, I don't know, I just didn't feel like running. <laughs> That's a quote. You know, your first reaction is to take your track shoe and irrigate him. Yeah! You know, <laughs> karate chop to the chest or something, you know. What? What do you mean you didn't feel like running? You think you're in this alone? Some other people here. You can't do that. This isn't just you. I should have known. He crow hopped six times in the broad jump event the same day. It wasn't his day. I mean, that was an unbelievable thing. And you say, well, that's awful. Yeah. 
but it's not as awful as somebody giving you the baton of truth and you fail to pass it on to somebody else, right? That's much more serious. See, the Christian life is all about that. It's I see myself as a teacher. I'll promise you something, young people. If you are not responsible to be passing on spiritual truth to someone else, you are going to fight a massive spiritual battle just to survive spiritually. You'll battle temptation on every front if you're not actively, aggressively engaged in the dissemination of spiritual truth, which holds you to the level of accountability that is demanded to do that, which means you're studying, you're taking in, and you're having to live it because somebody else is watching you. If you're not operating in the mode of a teacher, you are going to be fighting a losing battle just to keep your head above water. You want to have motivation to get into the world. You say, well, this is what you do for a living. Yeah, but I'll be real honest with you. If I didn't have to preach every Sunday, I wouldn't study as hard as I do. It's the accountability that I have to disseminate truth that forces me to the text. I want to get in relationships with people where it demands that I teach. One of the reasons that I want to preach on Monday morning here instead of Wednesday or Friday is because I need the motivation to make the most use of my Monday morning time to prepare my heart I don't want any windows of laziness. Somebody says, well, why do you do this on Monday? Why can't you just give yourself a little break from Sunday? No, it's better for me to maximize my time between when I'm done Sunday night and when I get here on Monday morning and fill it with something meaningful that I can share with you than it is to do nothing. The rest of the week is filled with plenty of stuff getting ready for Sunday. Because I know that the more I commit myself to the Word of God, the more I insulate my heart from the power of sin. And I also know that I'm responsible to pass on to you what God has taught me. I'm not a bucket. I'm a channel. You're not a cul-de-sac. It doesn't end with you. You're a thoroughfare. You have a tremendous responsibility to pass on truth, no matter who you are. If you want to be a strong Christian, you've got to see yourself as a teacher. Secondly, you have to see yourself as a soldier. And this is pretty clear in verse 3. Suffer hardship along with me, Paul says. I mean, I'm doing it. You might as well get used to it. As a good soldier of Christ Jesus, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Second thing Paul says to Timothy is, Look, Timothy, you've got to see yourself as a soldier. Timothy is saying, Oh, it's so difficult in Ephesus. It's so tough. We've got all these hassles. We've got all these battles going on. All this Ephesian errors coming in. All these leaders in the church are trying to hold me off. We've got all these women who are making trouble. We've got these men who are not fulfilling their spiritual responsibility. There's sin in the church. And, and these people think I'm too young and I'm battling my own lusts. This is too much. I'm going to quit. And Paul says, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're a soldier, and a soldier is made for war. You know, one of the things that interested me most in this Gulf War was every time they interviewed these soldiers, the answer, they, they said, well, now, how do you feel about the war? How do you feel about the war? None of them said, oh, oh, I hope. None of them said that. Well, I, I just wish we could just go home. If we could just go home and not even have to fight this war. What did they all say? Well, that's what we're trained to do, and we're never going to get it over till we start it, so let's get at it. Why, that's what a soldier's all about. That's what a soldier's for. That would be like a guy training all his life to sing, and you say, would you please sing? <laughs> I, I just can't sing. <laughs> what? I mean, if this is what you're trained to do, and this is what you're supposed to do, then have at it. So we were made for war. We're soldiers. Expect battle. 
I can just tell you, if you don't see yourself as a soldier, you're going to shrink from every fight. But if you see yourself as a soldier, you're going to want to get into every battle that lays in front of you. Now, there's several things about a soldier. One, a soldier suffers hardship. You've got to know there's going to be some difficulty, and you accept that. If there's no real difficulty in your life, if everything's just going along perfectly smooth, guess what? You're not in a war. You've run. You're AWOL. Then he says in verse 4, nobody who is a soldier entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. What he means is you can't be a civilian and a soldier at the same time. You know, when you're put into the army, they don't say, now look, now that you're in the army, could you please show up every day so, you know, we can use you? Uh, we, we'd like you to work us into your schedule. Do you have a daytime or you could sort of write down a few hours every day for us? No, no. They take you. That's it. They take you. They capture you. You're like a prisoner. Uh, they make you wear their clothes. They cut your hair the way they want it cut. They, they control your life. And that's how it is with a soldier. Paul says, look, Timothy, you can't control your own life. If you're going to be a strong Christian, you yield up the control of that to the one who called you to be a soldier. You want to please the commander. You want to please the commander. So, what does it mean to be a soldier? I'm ready for warfare. I know I'm going to suffer. I cut myself off from the world around me, and I do what I do to please the commander. I had this vividly illustrated to me when I was playing football one time. My first game, uh, in those days, freshmen couldn't play. Only uh, sophomores could play varsity football. And uh, I got into my first game. It was the first game of the year. We were playing over in the Rose Bowl. And uh, I was uh, basically playing in the backfield. And I knew what our opening play was going to be. We used to call it Power Blast 27, which is a two-back through the seven-hole, inside the tight end and the outside tackle. And I was the lead back to go through the hole and knock out the linebacker. Well, everybody knows that linebackers are not nice people. I mean, it goes with the territory. And this is your first game, and the only thing you've ever hit, you know, is bags and your own people. You know, you haven't seen the enemy yet. So there I was, and somewhat in fear, and I knew they had a guy with a great reputation. This was their strongest player. Uh, reputation-wise, and my job was to go through the hole and blow him out so that the back could come through and make a good gain. But as I was in the huddle and looking at the guy, the longer I looked at him, the bigger he got. You know, it was like somebody was inflating him. He just kept getting bigger and bigger. And bigger. I thought, I'm not going to waste my whole career on this one guy. i got to be very careful here, and I'll never forget it because I, I'll tell you why I never forgot it. But in a, looking at the guy, I decided I'd just go through and kind of, you know, nudge him a little bit and see how he reacted, not get too, too violent, right? So I went through the hole and just kind of tapped him, and he just flattened me, went through the hole, and we had about a six-yard loss. Just, just put the back on, on his back, boom, like this. And, of course, there's a pile of bodies, and I figure, ah, nobody knows what happens, right? Nobody will ever know. And later in the game, I scored a touchdown, we won the game, so, you know, I thought, ah, that's all in the past. Monday, went to the gym, signed on the board, report to the film room. Went in there, thought, oh, it was the first play of the game. They'll never get the film cranked up. They usually don't start the film in time, you know. And so I went in there, and sure enough, they had the film going. They started the film, and the, the camera was on my side of the field, which makes it worse, you know, because you're right there in full view. I go through the hole, bink, boom, you know, the whole deal. <laughs> and coach, my coach was a guy named Jim Brownfield, later coached at USC. He said... Uh, Stop the projector. Run that again. And then his famous line, which I never will forget, Men, watch MacArthur. <laughs> so everybody, everybody in the whole place is focused on me, right? And I go through, bing, you know, boom, and that's it. He ran it five times, forward, backward, forward, backward, and the sad part is I never improved. All five times I did exactly the same thing. And... 
I tell you, it was another one of those lessons like Dr. Feinberg taught me. I mean, I never went on a football field again the rest of my three-year career without thinking about one person. And it wasn't some girl in the stands or my friends or the cheerleaders. It was the coach. I'll tell you, as a soldier, there's only one person you have to please. That's the commander. Paul says, Timothy, look, you were made for battle. Get in it. That's what you're designed for. You have the armor for it. You have the weapon for it and the sword of the Spirit. Get into the battle and disentangle yourself from the world around you and do what you do to please the commander. Thirdly, and this takes us into the realm of the athlete. In verse 5, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The third picture he gives Timothy is of an athlete. The Greek verb here is athleo. It's, it's the verb athleo that the NAS translates competes as an athlete. And it means to exert yourself with great effort. It's a very strong word. It means to, to pay a price of exertion. It has in it the concept of agonizing, of extreme effort. And I just submit to you that to be a strong Christian demands everything you are, the supreme effort. I mean, you're never going to do it unless you give the supreme effort. There are a lot of great athletes in the athletic world. What separates the ones that you know about from the ones you don't know about very, very often, in fact, most frequently, is the simple issue of effort. Focused, wholehearted effort. Beginning to end. It isn't just talent. You reach a certain level in athletics, the talent is very similar, but the effort is not. And it's the people that can reach down deeper and find something inside of them that transcends the normal capability of the others. This was illustrated to me when I was with Russ Hodge, who used to be here at the college, who uh, still holds world records in the decathlon, at one time held the world record for the decathlon. And he was the coach of the U.S. team in the greatest decathlon competition in the last decade, at the University of Oregon. There was a team from the USSR, there was a team from the United States, and there was a team from Poland because Poland had two of the greatest decathletes in the world. Triangular meet at the University of Oregon. And he asked me to go, and so I went with him. We were standing on the infield, and all these great athletes were, were warming up. You know, some were going over the pole vault, some were high jumping, some were broad jumping, some were throwing discus shot put, and some were training on the sprints, sitting the blocks, and they were getting ready for this big event. This was the day before the event. And I said to him, who's the greatest athlete here? And he pointed to a young man from the United States, who, by the way, is an outstanding Christian. And he said he's the greatest athlete on the field. I said, who will win? He said, well, it's a different story. He said, the Russian over here holds the world record. And there was a, just a tremendous Russian athlete who had the world's record. And then there was a Russian Amazon, about a six foot six, 235-pound guy that was an unbelievable guy. And he says he's, he's a great athlete, but he can't run the distance. He ties up and so, so forth and so on. He said, this guy from Poland is this and that. But he said, the guy that will win is that little short guy over there. See him running around the track with a little blonde wife beside him? He'll win. I said, what do you mean he'll win? Does anybody know about him? He said, no, nobody knows about him. He's from a little tiny college in the middle of the country, uh, but he'll win. I said, well, why will he win? He said, because he's the most mentally tough man I've ever met in my life. And if he has to do five out of ten lifetime bests to win, that's exactly what he'll do. He has the most ability to focus and to make the maximum effort. 
And I'll never forget in the second day in the sunset of, of that little town of Eugene, Oregon, around that track came that guy with another lifetime best. And that day he won and he has set a world record for the decathlon. Two years later, he showed up in Montreal. He won the gold medal in Montreal. And you see him on a box of Wheaties holding a little flag. His name is Bruce Jenner. And what made him the greatest athlete in the world was not that he had necessarily the greatest physical ability, but he had the greatest mental toughness. And what did he get for it? Well, his marriage broke up, got to be on TV, got his face on a box of Wheaties. They do it to receive a corruptible crown, don't they? Paul says in verse 5, you want to be a strong Christian? Make the maximum effort. Get serious about your spiritual life. Pay the price to compete at the best level. Get focused. And then he adds, I love this, he doesn't win the prize. That's another thought. you got to go for the gold, right? I mean, you got to want to win. I believe the reason so many Christians fail is because they don't care if they succeed. Ah, they'll live at any level. You know, they're like dead fish. They float downstream. It takes a live one to buck the current. There, there's many Christian young people who just plain don't care that much. Well, I'm going to heaven and, you know, I'm, I'm okay. And they just kind of flop along. That's not okay. And you don't get away with that, obviously. And you live a very unfulfilling life. But he says here, the athlete does what he does to win. There's something about wanting to win. You say, well, you know, it's an unhealthy thing to want to win. It's un No, it isn't. C.S. Lewis wrote a great, great essay called The Weight of Glory. And he said, it is a great thing to want to win. He says, for example, let's say you're, you're a general. Let, let's take General Schwarzkopf. And let's say General Schwarzkopf lost the Gulf War. And 200,000 Americans got killed and he came back. And the president said, General, what happened? And he said, well, he said, there's something inherently evil in competition. And, you know, there's something um, very egotistical about winning. And after all, everyone deserves to win now and then. So I just felt, ah, oh, well, let him win. We'll win another day. What? If you go into a war and, and you don't make the maximum effort to win, you're a disaster. You, you come home ashamed. Look at Saddam Hussein. What shame there is in that kind of ill-conceived, ill-designed, and ill-planned effort. No. When a general comes home, you watch when Schwarzkopf comes home. This is the first great American hero in, in many of your lifetimes. The first great American hero. A man with an IQ of 170. An absolute genius. But a man's man. Who knows how to lead men. Who knows how to develop strategy. Who is in his confidence makes decisions that have ramifications that are reaching around the globe. That's a man. He's going to come home a hero because he won. Take, C.S. Lewis says, take, take human relations. A guy, a guy has a girl and he goes to her someday and they've been courting and he goes to her and says, girl, hopefully he knows her better than that, but for the sake of illustration, he says, girl, I love you. And she says, oh, I'm overwhelmed. This is terrific. You love me. I love you. I love you more than anyone in the world. Oh, in fact, uh, you're the most beautiful, ravishing creature that I have ever seen. Oh, this is wonderful. I accept all that. Oh, I accept all that. Thank you. Thank you. And then he says, and then he says, I want to have you for my own. I want to marry you. What if she said, 
Oh, crass, self-indulgent, possessive. What do you mean you want to marry me? Isn't it enough to love me? You've got to have me? What kind of ego is that? Wait a minute. Doesn't make any sense. See, the point is... The point is, love has a natural consequence, which is marriage. War has a natural consequence, which is victory. Athletics has a natural consequence, which is winning. And listen, that translates right into your spiritual life. Hey, we do it to win the prize, don't we? And if you say, well, yeah, but boy, what do you, you just want to get a crown, don't you? You just want to get a crown. You just want to go to heaven and get a bunch of crowns. One college student said to me one time years ago, what do you want to be, the, the imperial margarine man and just get crown after crown after crown, after, you know? My, my response is, look, if Jesus is giving them out, I'm taking them. Right? That's his call, not mine. I look at my Christian life and say, look, I'm, I'm going to be an athlete. I'm going to run this thing to the max. I'm going to do it to win the prize. And I'm, lastly, in verse 5, I'm going to do it according to the rules. Let me tell you, young people, you can be running with all your might and you can be going after the prize, but if you break the rules, you don't win, right? That's a pure life. That's a holy life. Fourthly, lastly, he says in verse 6, the hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Fourth picture, teacher, uh, soldier, athlete, farmer. you got to view yourself as a farmer. What does a farmer do? Sows seed, sows seed, plants the crop, waters it, waits, and takes in the harvest. You know, if you want to be a strong believer, you've got to see yourself as one who has to plant the seed. The seed, borrowing from the parables of Matthew 13, is the Word of God. And everywhere you go, you plant the Word of God, and then you water it in the lives of people, and you nurture it, and you do everything you can to see it come to fruition. And then you taste the harvest. I'm telling you, that's so wonderful. You receive your share of the crops. i got to tell you, when you spend your life sowing the seed, and the seed starts to come in, and takes time. Crop doesn't show up tomorrow. You don't plant today, you reap tomorrow. But when you take the time and you start to reap, I mean, it is so exciting. It is so thrilling. It is so wonderful to see how God can use your life in that way. See yourself as a farmer. You have the seed of the Word. You plant that seed by the way you live, by your godliness, by your Christian testimony, by the Word you speak, by the gospel you present. You're planting seed, and you're going to spend the rest of your life tasting the harvest. Tasting the harvest. That's so wonderful. I had the opportunity this last week to go to, up to uh, Cupertino to visit Paul Steele, a good friend of mine. Some of you know him, pastoring Valley Church. A couple of weeks ago, he's been there 20 years. A couple of weeks ago, they told him he has two weeks to live. 54 years old, right in the heart of his ministry. And broke my heart. And it's a struggle for his family, of course. And so I hopped in the car with Patricia and we went up there and spent two days, hours with him and... You know, I've done my best to share my life and ministry with Paul the best way I could and to be a friend to him and, and to uh, enrich his life. And I was by his bed and we just had the sweetest fellowship for about five hours as the Lord gave him rejuvenated strength as we prayed and sang hymns and read the scripture. And, and he said to me, he said, um, I trust you. He said, I trust you. And he said, I want to ask you a big, big favor. I said, anything. 
he said, this is my son, my only son, sitting by his bed, Kurt, who's a youth pastor, a great guy. He, by the way, had just given his father a 60-page syllabus on his spiritual goals so that before his father died, he could know what his life course was. 60 pages, he outlined his spiritual goals for his life and said, I want you to have this, Dad. I want you to read it so you know what my life goals are going to be. And so he said to me, he said, this, I know you know Kurt. He said, I just wonder if when I'm gone to heaven, if you'll become his spiritual father. And I thought to myself, the only thing more exciting than me being his spiritual father is having him as my spiritual son. And that's just one little one little taste of what happens when you plant some seeds in somebody's life and you reap that kind of harvest. The enrichment of my own life through the preciousness of this young man. When you invest your life in people as one who sows the seed of the truth of the Word of God and the way you live and the way you speak and the things you teach, you know you're going to spend your whole life reaping that? Your whole life reaping that? And the longer you live and the older you get, the more wonderful it is when you taste all the fruit of the labor of your life. To me, I have to tell you, that's the greatest joy of my life. is just savoring the way in which God, by His grace and providence, has used me to touch people's lives. If you want to be a strong young person, no matter what's going on, four pictures are going to bring it into focus for you. Teacher, soldier, athlete, farmer. Now, before you close, look at verse 7. Consider what I say, Paul says. Are you listening? The Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, have you listened? Then you consider it. What does he mean? Think about it. Meditate it on it. And as you meditate on it, I hope you understand this, that when someone preaches to you, you don't want to go away and forget it. You want to go away at the right place and meditate on it. And as you meditate on it, the Lord will give you understanding in everything. What does that mean? The Lord will apply it to your life. The Lord will begin to bury it into your very character. And then he closes with verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, that's his deity, descendant from David, that's his humanity, according to my gospel. Why does he say that? Why does he say, remember Jesus Christ? Let me ask you a question. Who's the greatest teacher that ever walked the earth? Jesus Christ. Who's the greatest soldier, fought the greatest battle, won the greatest victory at the cross? Jesus Christ. Who's the greatest athlete, ran the most perfect race, kept every single rule, never violated the rule, receives the ultimate prize and always pleased the commander? Jesus Christ. Who's the true farmer, sows the seed, brings in the crop? Jesus Christ. Take the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, the teacher, and blend them all together, and who do you get? Jesus Christ. You want to be a strong Christian? Remember Christ. Seek to be like Him. Let's stand for prayer. Father, thank you for this great morning together in your word. Thank you for all you're doing at our wonderful college. Father, thank you that we're, we're seeing your hand upon us. We praise you for that. and Make us faithful to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, that we might take the baton and pass it on to another generation. For the glory of our Christ whom we love, we pray. Amen.